Would you turn your Bibles to Esther chapter 4 this morning, Esther chapter 4. I've argued that in the book of Esther there are no godly human heroes. Xerxes and Haman are impulsive God-haters, and Mordecai and Esther are scheming and seemingly godless in their pursuit to protect their own skin. Many people uh, may paint them as godly, that is, Mordecai and Esther, but their actions, I believe, speak otherwise. They have, we have seen, they have hidden their uh, identity, uh, and they will continue to do so until they're compelled to reveal it. They live like pagans, and uh, they have seemingly little care for the things of God. And you know, the nation of Israel as a whole is not much different today. It's not full of people who honor God with their lips and with their hearts. The nation of Israel is not made up of people that God desired that have broken and contrite hearts. The Bible tells us that they won't be like that. They won't be godly. They won't be genuine believers until, that is the nation as a whole, until the end of the tribulation. When they finally repent, they see the works of God firsthand and they finally repent. Now certainly there are some Jewish Christians, you understand what I'm saying, but as a whole, the nation is corrupt. And so we could ask, who is it that's going to protect the nation of Israel? Who's going to protect them? Because God obviously has a plan for them. Who's going to protect God? Who's going to to protect him so that he can follow through on his promise to make these people great. What I'm telling you is that God doesn't need anyone to protect them because he is God. He doesn't need any help. If all the nations, like Psalm 2 talks about, if all the nations rage against God and, and in their greatest uh, strength try to oppose God, and if they were accompanied by every single demon in the entire universe, and they ganged up and tried to attack God and tried to, tried to thwart His plan, they would be as effective as a person throwing popcorn at the rock of Gibraltar. It would simply bounce off of Him as if it's nothing. Because God is far superior, far more infinite. He is infinite in comparison to all, those other, all of His creation. That's why we call Him the Creator. Because He wasn't created. He's not finite like us. He doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an end. The only reason we have no end is because we are taking on immortality. Important to get those words uh, straight there. Uh, And so God doesn't need heroes from humans in order to accomplish what He wants. He doesn't need heroes in order to protect the nation of Israel He doesn't need it now, and He didn't need it then. Because from the standpoint of God's choice, the Bible says that the people of Israel are beloved for the sake of their fathers. Romans chapter 11, verse 28. And therefore, we can count on God to protect them. Because God is faithful to His promise, and no matter how many people fail Him or oppose Him, He will remain true to His character and His nature because He is a good and faithful God. 
And everything that He wants to do will come to pass. Esther chapter 4 is at a time period in history when Israel is on the brink of distinction. They're a few months away from being completely eliminated. And that's why I ask this question, who is going to protect Israel? Both today and then, it was God. It was God who protected Israel. So let's read this passage, Esther chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. In each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. And many lay on sackcloth and ashes. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish, and she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hatak from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her, and it ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what, was, what this was and why it was. So Hatak went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edicts which had been issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go into the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. Hatak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these thirty days. They related Esther's words to Mordecai. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that, in the king's that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this? Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. God here is working. Again, He's not named in this book at all. But I believe that God is working behind the scenes to bring about good. God is working behind the scenes to bring about good. We see two main events that take place in this passage. Number one, the Jews discover that they're going to be killed. Verses 1 through 8. The Jews discover that they're going to be killed. And then number two, Mordecai convinces Esther to go before the king. Verses 11 through uh, the end of the chapter. So first, the Jews discover that they are going to be killed, verses 1-8. through eight. First, we see Mordecai's sorrow in verses 1-3. through three. 
Mordecai mourns because of the law that he heard, that he hears. And notice what he does when he learned that all had been done. Verse one: He tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out in the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. This phrase at the end of verse one: wailed loudly and bitterly, is literally he cried a cry. He cried a cry loud and bitter. This is Mordecai when he hears of the news. And, and you know that the sign of mourning in those days was to tear one's clothes and to put on sackcloth and ashes. It was a sign of mourning. And this is what we find Mordecai do, doing. And we see that his mourning is very public. He goes out, notice, into the midst of the city at the end of verse 1. But he can't go as far as the king's gate. Because apparently that was as, that was not allowed. Verse two says he went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Maybe this was a law that King Xerxes had laid down because he didn't want there to be any sign of sorrow within the main place of business. This is where all the legal uh, this is where all the, the legal action is going on, and, and much of the business is going on. And so perhaps king, the king didn't want to have any public sorrow in that place because otherwise that might bring upon the city as a whole a sign of desperation or depression. Now, some people look at the sorrow by Mordecai in verse 1 as a sign of his godliness. You know, he didn't want all the Jews to die. He didn't want God's promises to go unfulfilled and so maybe this is showing that Mordecai is, is a believer. But just because Mordecai is mourning over the death of the Jews. And remember who else was going to die? Himself. He, just because he's sorrowful over the death of the Jews does not make him a believer any more that, than any person in our country. You know, they go to a funeral. Does that make them a Christian because they're sorrowful over death? No. And so I don't think that this is a valid reason for why we should say that Mordecai is a believer. If... if he is a believer, then we need to find that from the text. We need to be able to see that from the text. Well, Mordecai sorrows in verses 1 and 2. And then in verse 3, we see all the Jews who received this letter also sorrow in each and every province. Verse 3, where the command and the decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. And many lay on sackcloth and ashes. You can just picture the news being spread to the various cities and provinces and as it is, you hear this loud wail among the Jews because of their recognition that they're going to die. But even though Mordecai knows what's going to happen, and the Jews throughout the, the provinces know what's going to happen, there's at least one Jew who does not know. And we find her in verses 4-6. through six. Esther, I don't believe, knows what's going on until Mordecai fills her in on the details. Apparently, all that Esther finds out is that Mordecai is mourning, that he's sorrowful over something. And so, you can picture why she's in, notice verse 4, great anguish. You can, you can picture that because we have that same feeling. If we see somebody you know, in tears or something, we don't know the reason why. We have, we have a sense of anguish for their pain, even if we don't know why. And I think that's what's going on here. Uh, Perhaps she had a little piece of the news, but, but apparently she doesn't know what's going on. And, and the reason I say that is because Mordecai is told to stop mourning 
And and the the way that we know that is because she sends to him clothes, right? He can't come into the king's gate because he's wearing the sackcloth. And so she sends to him clothes so that he can come into the king's gate and, in other words, stop mourning, stop being sorrowful. But what does Mordecai do at the end of verse 4? But he did not accept them. He didn't accept the clothes. And this was probably because Mordecai wanted to be clear to Esther that this is not some personal problem that I have. This is not, you know, just me that's affected by my sorrow, but it's all of the Jews. And I want you to see, Esther, that this is a national problem. And so, in verses 5 and 6, Esther sends her servant Hatak to find out what's going on. Hatak would have been a trusted servant of hers, trusted with sensitive information. We know that because Hatak's going to find out that Esther is a Jew through this conversation that he's relaying. We often picture this conversation happening between Esther and Mordecai, but it is, but it's through a servant. It's not a direct conversation where they kind of come and they're talking through the fence or something. This is Esther sends a note through Hatak, and then Hatak sends a note back to Esther. And so he's getting some very sensitive information. So he would have been a trusted servant of hers. Mordecai, in verses 7 and 8, explains the gravity of the situation. Again, here we see Mordecai at the king's gate and having access to very sensitive information suggesting that Mordecai is probably an official in the city of Susa. He's probably some senior official in the city of some kind. Senior leader. Mordecai verse uh, uh, verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 7. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised. So there's a couple things that clues us into Mordecai's high status within the society. One is he knew the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to the king if he could kill all the Jews. And that was 10,000 talents we learned last week. So So Mordecai knew that, but he also had access to a copy of the law. Okay, This is not like in our day where you could just make a copy and send it to every person or you know, like the census that comes to your house through the mail or something. No, there would only be the, the head officials in the city would have access to an actual copy of the law. And apparently Mordecai does because in verse 8 he gave Hatak a copy of the text of the edict that had been issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show Esther and inform her. Okay, and there in, the, in verse 8, that he might show her and inform her, that suggests to us that she had no idea what was going on yet. She just knew that Mordecai was sorrowful. And so Mordecai orders Hatak at the end of verse 8 to go into the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. Esther, here's what you need to do. Because all the Jews are going to be killed and because Haman has already got it set up in law, in, in written form, you're only hope. You are the queen. And you have the ear of the king more than anyone else in his province. And so you need to go in and talk to him. Because surely once you tell him that you're a Jew, he doesn't know that yet, right? Remember, she was eating the king's meat and she had hidden her identity. In fact, remember the name that was given to her? The Persian name that was given to her was Esther. But what was her Hebrew name? We find in chapter 1, it's actually uh, uh, chapter 2, Hadesa. So she had a Hebrew name. 
Her husband didn't even know it. She didn't, he didn't know. Do you think her husband would have put into law the killing of the, this people group that had defied uh, Haman if, if he knew that Esther were a Jew? Mordecai previously had told her to hide her identity. But now, interestingly, now that Mordecai's life is on the line, now he's saying, you know, how saying before you need to hide your identity? Well, you need to reveal it now. Because this will actually act in my favor and in the favor of all of our people so that we can be spared. And so you see that I believe that Mordecai did not have godly intentions here. He was simply thinking about himself. Well, in verses 9-17, through 17, Mordecai convinces Esther to plead with the king. First, Esther considers her options in verses 9-12. through 12, she, know, she says to, to Mordecai through Hatak, you know, I don't have as much favor as you think. I don't have as much favor as you think. I haven't had a conversation with him in how long? Look at verse... Uh, verse... Uh, where is it? Verse 11. At the end of verse 11. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. So Esther says to Hatak, tell Mordecai that I don't even see the king anymore. This is, remember, five years after she had been married. And perhaps he was really uh, infatuated with her at the beginning of their marriage, but now she's just another wife, apparently, because she hasn't even seen him for 30 days. He hasn't invited her to come before him in 30 days. and so, So she says, do you know the... What's going to happen to me if I go before the king without being summoned? If I go before him without being summoned, if he doesn't raise his golden scepter to me, then I will be killed. That's the law. That would be the worst case. The best case would be that he would remove me from being queen, just like he did with Vashti, because I have disgraced him. So Mordecai steps up in verses 13 and 14, and he gives three reasons. Why Esther must take a risk and go before the queen, before the king. Three reasons why she must take a risk. Number one, Esther, you are included in the judgment written in the law. Look at verse 13. You are included in the judgment. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. Okay, so the first reason why you ought to risk your life now is because you're included in the law. And if you don't act, you will die because you are a Jew. And this is something that cannot be repealed. Remember, this is the law of the Medes and the Persians. Chapter 1, verse 19. Something that cannot be reversed. This is the way they set up their law. So don't think that you're going to be spared, Esther. The second reason is found in verse 14. If she failed to act, she and her family would die. If she failed to act, she and her family would die. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. So first, Esther, you're included in the judgment. Secondly, if you fail to act, you and your family will die. Now, some would argue that this is faith on the part of Mordecai. 
You know, he's saying that relief and deliverance will come from God. Esther, if you don't act, then God's going to act. But the people who argue this argue that another place, look at the middle of verse 14, deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. And what they do is they take out another place and they put God. Or in other words, they say that another place is equivalent to God. If you don't act, Esther, deliverance will arise from God. God will come and do something spectacular. But I don't believe that that's, the, that's a valid translation or valid synonym for God. God has been called, or, or the way that they argue is, you know, God is called the place because He owns it all. It's, it's Him. And so we go into, or if we go to, you know, to the temple, we go to the place of the Holy of Holies and, and to be with God. And so in that way, God is another place. But if another place means God, then think about what Mordecai would be saying here. He would be saying, Esther, if you fail to act, then God Himself will act. If you fail to act, God Himself will act. So what would He be implying in that statement? That God would not be acting through Esther. In other words, the only way you're going to be spared is if you act, Esther. But if you don't, then God will. Okay. The point is, is that God's actually going to save them one way or the other. God's going to save them through Esther or apart from Esther. And apparently, Mordecai wasn't conscious of this. So, so I think the point that Mordecai is making here is, Esther, if you fail to be the human agent of deliverance, then there's going to be a human agent of deliverance that's going to come from another place. In other words, another means of deliverance. If you are not the means of deliverance, then another means of deliverance will arise from another place. So it could be that Mordecai is hoping that the Greeks come in and destroy the Persians. You know, the Greeks had just entered into this battle, this battle of Thermopylae, where they nearly wiped out the Persians. They they just had a debilitating, uh, they had a, a, an overwhelming victory, I should say. And so perhaps Mordecai is hoping that deliverance will arise from another place, from Greece, from, from those people. But I think perhaps a better way to understand this is that Mordecai is suggesting that all the Jews in the empire will escape from this law except for you and your family. Did you notice that in the text? If you remain silent, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but, okay, but he puts in the word and, but the idea is but you and your father's house will perish. Well, if relief and deliverance would come from another place, from the Greeks, let's say, they came in and wiped out uh, the Persians and the Jews were spared, why would, why would Esther and her family still die? And I think Mordecai is saying here is that we as a people group are going to remove ourselves out from under the tyranny of the Persians, but you're going to have to stay along with your household. Do you know why? Because you're part of the king's house. 
You're part of the king's house. And so if you fail to act, Esther, we're going to find relief from another place, but you're not. You're still going to die. And so here's your choice. If you act, Esther, you may die. There's a possibility that you will die. If you don't act, you definitely will die. Okay, so so here's your choice. Either go before the king, risk your life, or don't go before the king and guarantee that your life will be taken from you. So she considers her options. And then at the end of the verse 14, the third reason why she ought to risk herself. Number one, she is included in the judgment written in the law, verse 13. Number two, if she failed to act, she and her family would die, verse 14. And at the end of verse 14, the third reason why she should risk going before the king is because she was made queen for this very reason. Notice what he says at the end of verse 14. And who knows, Esther, whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Esther, the very reason that you became king or queen was to save the Jews. Now this statement has long been used by many to show Mordecai's deep trust in God's sovereignty and in His providential power. I believe that God has put you here for a purpose. I hope you realize that unbelievers talk about life having a purpose. That there's a reason for everything, even though they're godless people. Okay, so I don't know that that's a, 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 closed, a, a closed case argument for Mordecai's spirituality. And I, I must admit that there could be a hint of trust in God here. But I believe that Mordecai was actually just working to save his own skin. Keep in mind that if Mordecai really had a deep trust in God, God all along, would he have told Esther in the first place to hide her identity? Would he have allowed her to marry a pagan king? If what was at stake was Mordecai's belief and trust in God, here's how our trust in God is expressed. Is it expressed in our, just our thoughts and the way we talk about God? No, it's expressed in our actions. Don't tell me that you believe God, Mordecai, and then do all these things that are opposed to God. This is not what God's will was for you, to lead Esther to marry this pagan king. Now all of a sudden, you're, you're Mr. Mr. Spiritual. And the way that you show your trust in God is by believing His Word and obeying it. So I don't think he had a deep trust in God. It's true What Mordecai had to say was true. That that, that, uh, at the end of verse 14, maybe you've come to this place for such a time as this. It was true. But I believe that Mordecai was actually speaking better than he knew. Let me invite you to turn to John chapter 11 just to show you what I mean by this. John chapter 11. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. And in verse 45, we read that many believed in Him. Okay, John chapter 11, verse 45. Many believed in Him, but verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. 
Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, John here in verse 51 now clues us into what's going on. Okay, because he says something very profound. It's expedient for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. That is a very profound statement for an unbeliever to make. But look what John's commentary is on it on verse 51. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Caiaphas planned to kill the Messiah. Caiaphas was opposed to the Messiah, but he prophesied something unknowingly. That is, he believed what he was saying. He believed that it was better for Jesus to die than for all of his nation, under, under uh, the, the people under his rule, it would be better for Jesus to die than for all of His people that were following Him to die. But John was saying, he actually prophesied something that's very true. He, speak, he spoke better than he knew. That it is better for Jesus to die than for all people to perish. So, turn back to Esther chapter 4. So, Esther, or Mordecai, I believe, believes what he is saying. He is confident in what he's saying. Perhaps you've come to a place for such a time as this. You have, Esther. I believe it. I believe you're here for a purpose. But I'm arguing that he spoke better than he knew, similar to Caiaphas. You've been brought to this place, Esther, to rescue the Jews. And I believe that. And what we know from the rest of the story, and we know from God's great power is that God indeed did bring her to such a place for an event like this. Well, in verses 15 to 17, Esther decides to take a risk. Esther has a big decision to make. Think about what's at stake for her. She would have to reveal to her husband who she really was, her ethnicity, and thus be brought under the judgment of the law. Remember, she hadn't revealed that yet. She was using her Persian name, she hadn't told the king who she was. She would basically be telling all the pagan officials, including her husband, who she was and that for the last five years she had been living supposedly as a Jew, but really as a pagan. She was supposed to be a devout Jew and she was not. So it's not time for Esther to make a choice. Is she going to identify herself with the pagan Persians, say nothing and end up dying for certain or was she going to stand up and identify herself with the people who are going to be destroyed, with the objects of destruction? This is a big decision for her. And so she says in verse 15, uh, verse 16, Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa. And notice what she tells them to do. And fast for me. Do not eat or drink for these three days, night or day. Now when we think of fasting... We think of a time set aside for a person where he or she temporarily calls on God. He gives up 
bodily necessities in order to give his focus fully to, to, to talking to God, right? Fasting. Pleading with him on a specific matter. And you know what? That is often how fasting is portrayed in the Scripture. When David's child became very sick in 2 Samuel 12, David fasts and the text says prays for his child until his servants come near and they're standing near him and they're whispering. And David knows right away something's happened to the child, hasn't it? He's dead. And so he gets up and later on they, they, they say, David, you before you were fasting and praying, but now that your child's dead, you're not. Why not? And David said, well, the baby's dead. I can't do anything about it now. Fasting and praying will do no good. And so we have to ask, is Esther telling them to fast and pray like she would with her maidens? Because if she is saying that, then we should commend her for her trust in God that she's actually calling out to God here. You call out to God for me, and I will do the same with my maidens. But let me give you three reasons why Esther's call to fast was likely not godly. Three reasons why Esther's call to fast was likely not godly. Because this text, I think, is not a proof of Esther's spirituality. First, it would have conflicted with the observance of Passover. And I don't have the time to turn there, but if you would... Jot this verse down, Exodus 12:18. You find out that Passover was held at the exact time that this law came out. Notice in chapter 3, verse 7, in the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year uh, of King Hazuerus, per, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day, from month to month, until the twelfth month. So they're in the first month of the year, which is the time of Passover. They would celebrate Passover, according to Exodus 12:18, from the 14th of the month to the 21st of the month. And during that time, what were they required to eat? What were they commanded to eat during the time of Passover? Unleavened bread, right? And so if she were calling on them to fast, if she were herself fasting, then she would be denying the observance of Passover herself. I recognize that's not the strongest argument because there could have been some time elapsed from the time that the law was written in verse 7 of chapter 3 to the law time it was spread out. I recognize it's not the strongest argument. But that's why I have two more for you. Number two, she called on her maidens to fast. She called on her maidens to fast. Look at chapter 4, verse 16. Go and assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days or night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. These maidens probably would have been her, been with her for four, these four and a half years that she's been the queen. Perhaps they were converted under her rule. Perhaps she called from the very beginning or asked from the very beginning to have Jewish maidens. But again, they aren't, they aren't observing Jewish laws at this time. They're keeping their, their uh, ethnicity under wraps. And so I would suggest to you that these maidens are pagan God-haters. And why would she be calling on pagan God-haters to pray to their God? What good would that do? Okay, so that's, again, that's not the greatest argument. These first two are not the strongest. But let me show you 
the strongest argument, and that comes from the text, how she calls this. She says, Go and assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. And the third reason is this. The text doesn't mention prayer. Nowhere in the book of Esther is there any mention of prayer. In the Old Testament, when fasting is mentioned in a positive, godly way, it's always mentioned with prayer, but it's not here. And this writing would be consistent with several other examples in the Old Testament. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 21. Because prayer did not always accompany fasting. Like when Israel fasted and mourned for... Saul and Jonathan's death in 2 Samuel 1. Or when Darius, you remember King Darius in Daniel chapter 6? When, when he put Daniel in the lion's den, what was he doing that night? He was fasting. But there's no mention of prayer. And we would expect that from a godless king. But let me show you the clearest, clearest passage of fasting that's not accompanied by prayer. 1 Kings 21, look at verse 9. 1 Kings 21, verse 9. Uh, Let me just give you a little background before we read these verses. Ahab was distraught. Remember, Ahab the wicked king married who? Jezebel, wicked queen. Can't think of two more godless people in history. But Ahab was distraught because he wanted a a vineyard that Naboth owned. Remember? And he went to Naboth and said, I want to buy your land. And Naboth says, no, I'm not selling. So he comes home and he's pouting and his wife comes up to him. You're the king. Why are you pouting? And and Ahab says, because I wanted this vineyard and I couldn't get it. And she says, you're the king. You can do whatever you want. Give me your signet ring. I'll make a letter and I'll make sure that this happens. And so she does. And she puts Naboth at the head of the table at this big feast they're having, supposedly for Naboth. And during the feast, she commands that two officials in his city indict him, charge him with... Uh, with uh, defiance against king, the king and against God. This is wicked Jezebel. She sets this all up. Of course, this all takes place. And they take him out and stone him. And look at what happens in verse 9. Chapter 21, verse 9. Now she wrote in the letter saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the table. And seat two worthless men. So this is where she's writing the letter. She's saying, Proclaim a fast, you and the whole city. Do you think there's any godly motives in that? Absolutely not. Verse 27. After this takes place, it came about when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted. And he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. Does that sound familiar? Just because fasting is listed in the Scripture does not mean that it's a godly practice because even pagans fasted. This was a sign of their mourning. They would give up all of their food. They would put on sackcloth and wear ashes on their head in order to show they were mourning. They were sorrowful. And so, if we turn back to Esther chapter 4, what I'm suggesting to you is just because Esther said, go fast, doesn't mean that she had any godly motives there. Now, at the end of verse 16, I need to address one more thing because this is another one that's used to, to... Prove her spirituality. At the end of the verse, it says, If I perish, I perish. It very well could be that she was willing to die for the sake of her people. 
But remember what the reasons were that Mordecai gave her that would eventually convince her to go before the king? What were the reasons? You are part of the you are part of the judgment. You will die if you do nothing. And you're the only one that has been put in this place to save yourself and the rest of the nation. You're the only one. It was all about Mordecai was all about saving himself and he was showing Esther that it was all about saving herself. It wasn't about God's people, God's plan, make sure that Abraham's promises are finally fulfilled. Now, I'm not trying to minimize her courage or her bravery, but I don't think that her bravery and her courage was properly motivated. Verse 17, Mordecai does what she commands. He gathers all the Jews in the city of Susa to fast for her. And we'll find out that she does go into the king in in the next chapter. But what I want you to see here is we don't have to be discouraged here. Because you know what? We don't have any godly human heroes. We don't have anybody to emulate in this passage. Because God's purposes will be accomplished through all kinds of people. And listen to this. Whether they are aware of it or not, God will accomplish His purposes through all kinds of people, whether they're aware of it or not. I mean, as believers, we understand that. God accomplishes purposes through godly people often. He does. Joseph understood that. You brothers, Genesis 50, 20, you meant it for evil, but what? God meant it for what? For good. Joseph understood that as a godly young man. But there are countless people in history past who had no idea that they were being used by God to accomplish His purposes. Can you think of any? Think of Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. God says, For this very purpose, Pharaoh, I raised you up. What? Yes, God raised up Pharaoh for this very purpose. What? So that my power would be demonstrated through you. That is, on top of you, in judgment over you. The greatest event in the Old Testament was when was the, was the Exodus, right? We wouldn't have been able to see God's great glory if it weren't for Pharaoh being raised up and God saying, I raise you up. And he says that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Other people have no idea that God's using them as an instrument of, of accomplishing His purposes. Judas Iscariot, right? Acts chapter 1, verse 16. He, was thought, he, he thought that he was betraying the Lord. And he was. And he's responsible for that. But you know what Acts 1, 16 says? The Scriptures had to be fulfilled. God had already purposed that Judas would betray the Christ, didn't He? But the prime example, I hope you thought of this one, the prime example are the Jews who killed our Lord. Listen to Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, and listen to God using the wicked Jews to accomplish something great. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, Listen to this. This is talking about God. To do whatever His hand and His purpose predestined to occur. God will accomplish His purposes through all kinds of people whether they know it or not. Whether they are aware of Him using them or not. 
And that should give us great comfort because God will, God's purposes will stand. And do you know the way that God works today is no different? That He works through your violent neighbor? He works to accomplish His purpose through your conniving relative? Through your repulsive co-worker or through the, ride, the rude driver who cut you off? God works through all those people in unknowing ways a lot of times on their part to accomplish what He wants in you. They are all instruments in the hands of God to bring about, as Joseph said, good. And so we can be comforted as believers. We may not see it. We may not know exactly why God puts these difficult circumstances or people into our lives. But we have to trust that what God is doing is best, is right. And He's using all sorts of people to do it, even when we don't understand. Even the wickedest kings or rulers that have ever come on the earth, they've all been predetermined by God to accomplish what He wanted. And so while Esther is working to save her skin, God is working in the heart of the king, King Xerxes, Ahasuerus, to change his heart so that He will allow the Jews to be protected here. And we know that, that God works through even the wickedest of kings because Proverbs 21 one says the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and He turns it whatever way He pleases. God is just. God is right. And He doesn't need godly human heroes in order to accomplish what He wants. He can accomplish it any way He wants. And that should give us great confidence and hope that our God is is doing what is best for us. Romans 8:28. Let's pray. Oh, great God in highest heaven. We pray that you would occupy our lonely hearts and that you would own them all and reign supreme and conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that that uh, that resists your holy war because you have loved and purchased me. You've purchased us. Make us yours forevermore. Lord, we are confident in your power and your sovereign rule and we trust that your ways are best. And we don't see all of what You're doing in life. And we're often confused and frustrated with our circumstances and with the people that You've placed around us. But we are confident because Your Word tells us to be that You are doing what is best for those who love You, to those, for those who are called according to Your purpose. And we believe to be those people. So that means that You're working for our best. And we know that our best is not perfect peace with all humans in this world. It's not a, a huge bank account. It's not great power and authority. It is our sanctification. So all these things that are done in our lives, all these people that come into our lives are done, uh, come in and, are, and these purposes are done so that You will bring about our growth in godliness. Help us to believe at least that and then to trust You for the rest. 
Not that we have to know every reason why, but to put our confidence fully on You. And questions that may not be answered in this lifetime or in the next, we pray that You'd help us to just have faith that You are doing what is best. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.